Chapter Seven, Part Two of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Roscoe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Seven, Part Two. She pressed him with questions, asking everything, insisting on having details, and she laughed so heartily with such sudden outbursts as made her roll about in her nightdress, which one moment slipped from her shoulders and the next curled itself up under her and displayed her skin shining like gold in front of the blazing fire, that the Count, little by little, gave her the history of his wedding night. He no longer felt any repugnance, and ended by thinking it great fun to explain. He merely chose his words through a remnant of shame. The young woman, very excited, questioned him about the Countess. She was beautifully made, but a regular icicle, so he pretended. Oh, you've no cause for jealousy, he despicably murmured. Nana had left off laughing and had resumed her seat, her back to the fire and her chin resting on her knees, round which she had clasped her hands. My dear fellow, it's the greatest mistake out for a man to appear a ninny to his wife on the first night, declared she in a grave tone of voice. Why? asked the Count in surprise. Because, replied she slowly like a professor. She was lecturing, she wagged her head. However, she deigned to explain herself. You see, I know all about it. Well, my boy, women don't like simpletons. They say nothing on account of their modesty, you know. But you may be quite sure they think a great deal, and sooner or later, when they haven't had what they expected, they seek for it elsewhere. There. Now you know as much as I do. He did not seem to understand, so she was more circumstantial. She became quite maternal and gave him this lesson in a friendly way out of the kindness of her heart. Ever since she had heard that he was a cuckold, the knowledge of this circumstance worried her. She had a hankering to discuss the matter with him. Well, really, I've been talking of things that don't concern me. What I say is simply because I want everyone to be happy. We're merely having a chat, aren't we? Come now, you must answer me truly. But she interrupted herself to change her position. The fire was so fierce. By Jove, isn't it hot? My back's quite cooked. Wait a moment. I'll cook my stomach a bit now. It's good for the spasms. And when she had turned herself round, with her legs doubled under her, she resumed, You and your wife don't occupy the same room, do you? No, I assure you, replied Mifa, afraid not to answer. And you think that she's a regular stick? He affirmatively bowed his head. And that's why you come to me? Answer me. I shan't be angry. He bowed his head again. Very well, concluded she. I thought as much. Ah, poor fellow. You know my aunt, Madame Lara. Next time she comes, get her to tell you the story of the green grocer who lives in her street. Just fancy, the green grocer. Dread it. The fire is hot. I must turn round again. I'll cook my left side this time. As she presented her hip to the flames, a funny idea seized hold of her and she joked herself in a jolly sort of way, delighted at seeing how plump and rosy she looked in the reflection of the fire. I say, I'm just like a goose. Yes, that's it, a goose roasting. I turn, I turn. Really, I'm cooking in my own juice. Again she laughed aloud, when suddenly there was a sound of voices and of closing doors. Mifa, surprised, interrogated her with a look. She at once became serious, and there was an anxious expression on her face. 
It was no doubt Zoe's cat, a confounded beast that was always breaking everything. Half-past twelve. Whatever had she been thinking of, wasting her time in working for her cuckold's happiness? Now that the other one was there, she must get rid of him, and quickly, too. What were you saying? asked the Count complacently, delighted at finding her so amiable. But in her desire to send him off, her humor quickly changed. She was coarse and no longer minster words. Ah, uh, yes, the greengrocer and his wife. Well, my boy, they never got on together, not a bit. She, you know, expected all sorts of things, but he was a ninny. And so it went on till it ended like this. He, thinking her a stick, went with a lot of strumpets and got more than he bargained for. Whilst she, on her side, consoled herself with some fellows who knew a trifle more than her simpleton of a husband. And it always ends like that when you don't understand each other. I know it does. Mifa paled, understanding at last her allusions, and wished to make her leave off. But she intended to have her say. No, hold your row. If you were not all a set of fools, you would be just as nice with your wives as you are with us. And if your wives were not a lot of geese, they would take the same trouble to keep you to themselves that we take to hook you. But you all give yourself such confounded airs. There, my boy, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Do not talk about respectable women, said he severely. You do not know anything about them. On hearing this, Nana rose on her knees. I don't know anything about them. But they're not even clean, your respectable women. No, they're not even clean. I defy you to find one who would dare to show herself as I am here. Really, you make me laugh with your respectable women. Don't drive me too hard. Don't force me to say things that I should regret afterwards. For sole rejoinder, the Count muttered a foul word between his teeth. Nana, in her turn, became deadly pale. She looked at him for a few seconds without speaking. Then, in a clear voice, she asked, What would you do if your wife deceived you? He made a menacing gesture. Well, and I, supposing I deceived you? Oh, you, he murmured, shrugging his shoulders. Nana was certainly not unfeeling. Ever since the first word, she had been resisting a desire to tell him of his cuckoldom to his face. She would have liked to have confessed to him quietly, but he exasperated her. She must put an end to it. Therefore, my boy, she resumed, I don't know what the devil you're doing here. You've done nothing but pester me for the last two hours, so go and join your wife who's consoling herself with faucherie. Yes, I know what I'm saying. In the Rue Thébault, at the corner of the Rue de Provence. I give you the address, you see. Then, seeing Mufa rise on his feet, staggering like an ox that had just received a stunning blow, she added triumphantly, Ah, they're getting on well, your respectable women. They even interfere with us now and take our lovers. But she was unable to continue. In a terrible passion, he threw her full length on the floor and, raising his heel, was about to crush her face to silence her. For the moment she had an awful fright. But he blinded and, as though mad, left her and rushed helplessly about the room. Then the choking silence he maintained, the sight of the internal struggle which shook his frame, brought tears to her eyes. She felt a mortal regret, and, curling herself up before the fire so as to cook her right side, she undertook to console him. "'I assure you, darling, I thought you knew of it. Otherwise, I certainly would not have spoken. Then, after all, perhaps it isn't true.' 
I'm not sure of anything. I merely heard it. People talk about it. But that proves nothing, does it? Ah, really now, you're very stupid to be put out about it. If I was a man, I wouldn't care a tinker's curse for any woman. Women, my boy, high or low, are all the same. All loose fish. It's six of one and half a dozen of the other. She went in for abusing women in general so as to make the blow less hard to bear. But he did not listen to her. He did not hear her. While stamping about, he had somehow or other managed to get on his boots and his overcoat. For a moment longer he wandered about the room. Then with a last rush, as though he had only just discovered the door, he disappeared. Nana felt very much put out. Well, ta-ta, she continued aloud, though all alone. He's polite he is when he's being spoken to. And I, who was sweating away to make it up again with him. Anyhow, I was the first to hold out my hand. I made quite enough excuses, I think. Besides, he shouldn't have stopped here annoying me. However, she remained displeased with herself, scratching her legs with both hands, but she at length muttered consolingly, Oh, dash it! It isn't my fault that he's a cuckold. And roasted on all sides, as hot as a quail just removed from the spit, she jumped into bed, after ringing for Zoe to usher in the other one who was waiting in the kitchen. Outside, Mifa continued to hurry on. Another shower had just fallen. He slipped along the greasy pavement. As he mechanically looked up in the air, he saw large black clouds floating rapidly across the moon. At that hour, the boulevard houseman was almost deserted. He passed the scaffoldings of the new opera house, keeping in the shadow and stammering disconnected sentences. The girl lied. She had cruelly invented that to annoy him. He ought to have crushed her head when he had it beneath his heel. It was too shameful. He would never touch her nor see her again. If he did, he would indeed be a cur. And he drew a long breath of relief at his deliverance. Ah, that stupid naked monster cooking like a goose, driveling about all that he had respected for forty years past. The clouds had cleared away from the moon, which now lighted up the empty street. He was seized with fear and burst into sobs, suddenly giving way to despair, as though he had been precipitated into illimitable space. Oh, heaven, he stammered. All is over. There is nothing more. Along the boulevards a few belated pedestrians were hurrying home. The Count tried to compose himself. The girl's story kept perplexing his heated brain. He wished to examine it calmly. That very morning the Countess was to return from Madame de Chazelle's chateau. There was nothing to have prevented her returning on the previous evening and passing the night with that man. He now recalled certain things that had occurred during their stay at Les Fondettes. One night he had found Sabine wandering about among the trees, and she was so agitated that for some time she was unable to answer him. That man was there, then. Why should she not be with him now? The more he thought of it, the more it seemed to him possible. He ended by thinking it only natural and even inevitable. Whilst he had been taking off his coat at a harlot's, his wife had been disrobing herself in a lover's bedchamber. There was nothing more simple or more logical. And as he reasoned thus, he forced himself to keep cool. He experienced the sensation of a fall into the follies of the flesh, which spreading and gaining on him swept the world away from around him. Phantoms created by his heated imagination pursued him. Nana, undressed, abruptly evoked Sabine, undressed also. 
At this vision, which gave the two women a like parentage of wantonness and the same inordinate desires, he stumbled. A cab passing along the road nearly crushed him. Some women coming out of a cafe pushed up against him, laughing coarsely. Then, again giving way to tears, in spite of his efforts and not wishing to sob aloud before the passers-by, he turned down a dark empty street, the Rue Rossini, where he cried like a child as he moved past the silent houses. All is over, he kept saying in a hollow voice. There is nothing more, nothing more. His tears so mastered him that he leant against a door, burying his wet face in his hands. A sound of footsteps chased him away. He felt such shame and such fear that he fled from everyone with the cautious tread of a night prowler. Whenever anybody passed him on the pavement, he tried to assume a careless gait, as though he imagined that his history could be read in the movement of his shoulders. He had turned down the Rue de la Grande Batelière and reached the Faubourg Montmartre, but the bright lights caused him to retrace his footsteps, and for close upon an hour he wandered thus about the neighborhood, choosing always the darkest turnings. He had no doubt a goal to which his feet instinctively conducted him, patiently and by a most circuitous road. At length, at the turn of a street, he raised his eyes. He had arrived. It was the corner of the Rue Thébault and of the Rue de Provence. He had, in the painful disorder of his brain, taken an hour to reach it, while he might have done so in five minutes. One morning in the previous month, he recollected having called on Fauchery to thank him for having mentioned his name in the description of a ball at the Tuileries. The apartment was on the first floor, with little square windows half hidden by the colossal signboard of the shop. The last window on the left was divided by a streak of brilliant light, the ray of a lamp passing between the partly closed curtains. And with his eyes fixed on that bright line, he stood absorbed, awaiting something. The moon had disappeared in an inky sky from which a drizzling icy rain fell. Two o'clock struck at the Church of the Trinity. The Rue de Provence and the Rue Thébault, with their lighted gas lamps, disappeared in the distance in a yellow vapor. Mufa did not stir. That was the room. He recollected it well, hung in crimson and with a Louis Thirteenth bedstead at the back of the apartment. The lamp was probably to the right on the mantelpiece. No doubt they were in bed, for not a shadow passed the immovable line of light. And he, still watching, arranged a plan. He would ring, and hastening upstairs, in spite of the doorkeeper, would burst into the room and fall upon them in bed, without even giving them time to disengage their arms. The knowledge that he had no weapon arrested him for a moment. Then he decided that he would strangle them. He turned his plan over in his head. He perfected it, always awaiting something, some sign, to make him certain. Had the shadow of a woman's form appeared in that moment, he would have rung the bell. But the thought that he was perhaps mistaken froze him. What would he be able to say? His doubts returned to him. His wife could not be with that man. The idea was monstrous and impossible. But still he stayed on, overcome by degrees, by numbness, succumbing to weakness in that long vigil, to which the fixity of his look imparted a sense of hallucination. The shower increased. Two police officers drew near, and he was obliged to leave the doorpost against which he had sought shelter. When they had disappeared down the Rue de Provence, he returned, wet and shivering. The bright line still showed across the window. This time he was going away when a shadow passed. The movement was so rapid that he thought he might be mistaken, but one after another other shadows passed, and there seemed quite a commotion in the room. 
riveted again to the pavement opposite, he experienced an insupportable sensation of burning in the stomach. Profiles or arms and legs came and went. An enormous hand bearing the silhouette of a water can glided by. He distinguished nothing clearly, yet he thought he recognized a woman's head of hair. And he argued within himself, it was like Sabine's headdress, only the back of the neck seemed broader than hers. But at that hour he was incapable of determining, he could not tell. His stomach caused him so much suffering that he pressed up against a door, like a shivering outcast, to obtain relief in the agony of this frightful uncertainty. Then, as in spite of all, he could not take his eyes from off that window, his anger melted into the imagination of a moralist. He saw himself a deputy. He was speaking in the chamber, inveighing against debauchery, prophesying catastrophes, and he repeated the arguments in Faucherie's article on the poisonous fly, and declared that society could no longer exist with the manners and customs of the Second Empire. This did him some good. The shadows had now disappeared. No doubt they had gone back to bed. He, ever on the watch, still waited. Three o'clock struck, then four o'clock. He could not tear himself away. Each time a shower came down, he squeezed up against the doorpost, the rain beating on his legs. No one passed by now. Occasionally his eyes closed, as though burnt by the ray of light on which, with obstinate folly, he persistently fixed them. Twice again did the shadows reappear, going through the same movements, carrying the same gigantic water-can, and each time afterwards all became still as before, whilst the lamp continued to glimmer discreetly. These shadows increased his doubts. Besides, a sudden idea had just appeased him in deferring the hour of action. He had merely to wait till the woman came out. He would easily recognize Sabine. Nothing could be simpler. There would be no scandal, and he would no longer be in doubt. All he had to do was to remain there. Of all the confused feelings that had hitherto agitated him, he no longer experienced anything but a morbid desire to know. Having nothing to do, however, standing up against that door soon made him feel drowsy. To keep himself awake, he tried to calculate the time it would be necessary for him to wait. Sabine was to arrive at the station at about nine o'clock. That gave him almost four and a half hours. He was full of patience. He would never have moved again, finding a charm in fancying that his night vigil would be an eternal one. Suddenly, the ray of light disappeared. This very simple occurrence was an unexpected catastrophe for him, something disagreeable and annoying. They had evidently turned out the lamp and were going to sleep. At such an hour it was only natural— but he felt irritated because that window, being now in darkness, no longer interested him. He watched it for a quarter of an hour longer, then it tired him, so he left the doorway and took a few steps along the pavement. Until five o'clock he walked to and fro, occasionally raising his eyes. The window remained in the same dormant state, and at times he would ask himself whether he had not dreamed that he had seen shadows cross those panes. A great fatigue overwhelmed him, which made him forget what he was waiting for at that street corner, stumbling over the paving stones, awaking with starts and the cold shiver of a man who no longer knows where he is. What was the good of his bothering himself about the matter? As the people had gone to sleep, all he had to do was to leave them in peace. Why should he mix himself up in their affairs? It was very dark. No one would know of his having waited there. And then, all feeling in him, even his curiosity, fled, 
carried away in a desire to have done with it all and to seek some solace elsewhere. The cold increased, the street became unbearable. Twice he moved away, then returned slowly, but only to move away again farther off. It was over. There was nothing more. He went in the direction of the boulevards and did not return. He wandered silently through the streets. He walked slowly, always with the same step and keeping close to the wall. His heels resounded on the pavement. He beheld nothing but his shadow which turned at each lamppost, becoming larger and smaller. That amused him, mechanically occupying him. Afterwards he would never recall through what streets he had gone. He seemed to have dragged himself along for hours in a circle. One single recollection remained, and that very clearly. He had found himself, he could not tell how, with his face pressed against the iron railings that closed the Passage des Panoramas, clasping the bars in his hands. He was not shaking them. He was merely trying to see into the passage under the influence of an emotion with which his heart was bursting. But he could distinguish nothing. Darkness reigned in the deserted gallery, whilst the wind which entered by the Rue Saint-Marc blew the dampness of a cellar into his face. And a strange infatuation kept him there. Then, awakening as though from a dream, he was filled with surprise, and asked himself what he was seeking at that hour, pressed against those railings with such a force that the bars had left their marks upon his face. And he resumed his tramp in despair, his heart filled with a great sadness, as if betrayed and alone forevermore in all that darkness. Day at length broke, and to the winter night there succeeded that dull light which looked so melancholy on the muddy pavement of Paris. Muffat had returned into the large new roads that were being made around the scaffoldings of the new opera house. Soaked by the showers, broken up by the heavy carts, the chalky soil had become changed into a miry lake. And, without looking where he placed his feet, he continued walking on, slipping and with difficulty keeping his legs. The awakening of Paris, the gangs of scavengers and the early groups of workmen brought him a fresh worry as the day advanced. He was stared at with surprise with his wild appearance, his muddy clothes, and his hat soaked with the rain. For a long time he sought refuge against the palings among the scaffolding. In his empty head one idea alone remained, which was that he was very miserable. Then his thoughts turned to God. The sudden idea of divine assistance, of a superhuman consolation surprised him, like something extraordinary and unexpected. It awakened in his mind the picture of Monsieur Venot. He beheld his plump little person, his decayed teeth. For certain, Monsieur Venot, whom for months past he had been grieving by not going near him, would be very happy were he now to knock at his door and weep on his breast. At other times God had always been merciful to him. At the least sorrow or the smallest obstacle encountered in life he would enter a church, and kneeling would humble himself before the Supreme Being, and he would come out fortified by prayer, ready to enjoy the sweets of life, with the sole desire for the salvation of his soul. But now he could only pray by fits and starts, just when a fear of hell seized upon him. He had given way to a great indolence. Nana interfered with his duties, and the thought of God surprised him. Why had he not thought of the Almighty in the first instance, during that frightful crisis in which his weak humanity succumbed? Then, with feeble footsteps, he sought a church. He could remember nothing. The early hours seemed to alter the streets. 
As he turned the corner of the Rue de la Chassé-Dantin, however, he caught sight of the Church of the Trinity in the distance, its steeple seen very indistinctly in the fog. The white statues overlooking the naked garden appeared like so many shining Venuses among the faded yellow leaves of a park. Beneath the porch he paused a moment to take breath, fatigued by the ascent of the high flight of steps. Then he entered. The church was very cold, the great stove having been extinguished the previous evening, and the tall arches were filled with a fine mist which had filtered in through the apertures of the glass windows. A shadow hung over the lower part. Not a soul was there beyond a beetle, who, in the midst of that semi-darkness, dragged his feet over the stones in the sullenness of the awaking hour. Mifa, after knocking up against a number of chairs, feeling lost, his heart fit to burst, had fallen on his knees against the railings of a little side-chapel, close to a holy water-font. He had clasped his hands, trying to find a prayer in which he could pour forth his very soul, but his lips alone muttered words. His mind was elsewhere, outside, following the streets without repose, as though beneath the lash of some implacable necessity. And he repeated, O oh Lord, help me! O oh God, do not abandon your creature who abandons himself to your justice. O oh merciful Father, I adore you. Will you let me perish beneath the blows of your enemies? Nothing seemed to answer. The shadow and the cold hung about his shoulders. The noise of the beetle walking in the distance continued and prevented him from praying. He heard naught but that irritating sound in the deserted church which had not even then been swept, nor had the early mass been performed. Then, holding on to a chair, he raised himself with a cracking of his knees. God had not yet arrived. Why should he go and weep on Monsieur Venot's breast? That man could do nothing. And he mechanically returned to Nana's. Outside, having slipped, he felt tears come to his eyes, not with anger against fate, but simply because he felt weak and ill. He was really too tired. He had been out too long in the rain, he felt the cold too much. It froze him to think of going back to his dismal home in the Rue Miromenil. At Nana's the street door was not open, he had to wait till the concierge appeared. As he went upstairs he smiled, already feeling the pleasant warmth of that nest, where he would at length be able to stretch himself and sleep. When Zoe let him in she made a gesture of amazement and uneasiness. Madame, having been seized by a violent headache, hadn't closed her eyes all night. However, she would go and see whether she had fallen asleep or not, and she glided into the bedroom whilst he sat down on a chair in the drawing-room. But Nana appeared almost instantly. She had jumped out of bed, scarcely taking time to put on a petticoat, and entered with bare feet, her hair hanging about her shoulders, her nightdress rumpled and torn, in the disorder of a night of love. "'What? You are here again?' cried she, red with passion. Under the influence of her rage, she was hastening to put him out herself. But seeing him in such a state, so utterly helpless, she was once more moved to pity. Well, you're in a nice mess, my poor fellow, she resumed in a more pleasant tone of voice. What is the matter with you? Ah, you've been watching them. You've been having a time of it. He said nothing. He looked like a stunned ox. Yet she understood that he had not been able to obtain any proof, as she added just to bring him to himself again. You see, I was mistaken. Your wife is all right, on my word she is. Now, my boy, you must go home and get to bed. You are in want of sleep. He did not stir. Come, be off. I can't keep you here. 
You don't, I suppose, want to stop at this time of day? Yes, let us go to sleep, he muttered. She repressed a violent gesture. She was fast losing patience. Was he going crazy? Come, be off, said she a second time. No. Then, thoroughly exasperated, she broke out in revolt. But it's disgusting. Understand me, I've had a great deal too much of you. Go and find your wife who's making a cuckold of you. Yes, she's making a cuckold of you. It's I who tell you so now. There. Have you got what you wanted? Will you leave me or not? Mipha's eyes filled with tears. He clasped his hands. Let us go to sleep. Nana scarcely knew what she did, choking as she was with nervous sobs. It was too much. Did all these matters concern her? She had certainly taken all possible precaution in telling him so as not to hurt his feelings, and now she was to pay for the broken glass. Oh, no, if you please. She was good-natured, but not to that extent. Damnation! I've had enough of it all, swore she, striking the furniture with her clenched fists. Ah, well, I who took so much care to keep faithful, why, my fine fellow, I could be as rich as ever to-morrow, if I only said a word. He raised his head in surprise. He had never given the money question a thought. If she would express a desire, he would gratify it at once. His whole fortune was hers. No, it's too late, replied she furiously. I like the men who give without being asked. No, were you to offer me a million for one embrace, I would refuse you. It's all over. I have something better there. Be off, or I will no longer answer for myself. I shall do something dreadful. And she advanced towards him menacingly. But in the midst of this exasperation of a kind-hearted girl pushed to extremes and convinced of her right and of her superiority over the worthy people who pestered her, the door suddenly opened and Steiner appeared. This was the last straw. She uttered a terrible cry. Hello! Here's the other one now! Steiner, bewildered by the noise of her voice, stood still. Mifa's unexpected presence annoyed him for he was afraid of an explanation from which he had kept aloof for three months past. Blinking his eyes, he twisted himself about in an uneasy sort of way, and avoided looking at the Count, and he breathed hard with the red and distorted features of a man who has rushed about Paris to bring some good news, and who finds he has fallen into a catastrophe. "'What do you want, you, eh?' asked Nana roughly, speaking familiarly to him in spite of the Count's presence. "'I—' I, he stammered, I have brought you, you know what. What's that? He hesitated. Two days before she had told him not to show himself there again without bringing a thousand francs, which she required to pay a bill. For two days he had been seeking the money, and he had just succeeded in completing the sum that very morning. The thousand francs, he ended by saying as he withdrew an envelope from his pocket. Nana had forgotten all about them. The thousand francs, cried she. Do I ask for charity? Look, see what I do with your thousand francs. And seizing the envelope, she threw it in his face. Like a prudent Jew, he picked it up, though painfully. He glanced at the young woman in a stupefied fashion. Mifa exchanged a look of despair with him, whilst Nana placed her hands on her hips in order to shout the louder. I say now, have you nearly finished insulting me? As for you, my boy, I'm glad you've also come. For now, look here, I can have a clean sweep. 
Now then, out you go. Then, as they did not seem to hurry themselves, but stood as though paralyzed, she went on. What, you say I'm foolish? That's possible, but you've plagued me too much. And drat it all, I've had enough of a fashionable existence. If I bust up, it's my lookout. One, two, you refuse to go. Well, look here then, I've got a friend. With a sudden movement, she threw the bedroom door wide open. Then the two men beheld Fontaine in the middle of the tumbled bed. He had not expected to be exhibited thus, with his dusky person spread out like a goat in the midst of the crumpled lace, his legs showing under the flying tail of his nightshirt. He was not, however, by any means embarrassed, used as he was to the surprises of the stage. After the first shock was over, he was able to make a face which ensured him the honors of war. He did the rabbit, as he called it, thrusting out his mouth, curling his nose and moving all the muscles of his face at the same time. His head, resembling that of a libidinous fawn, exuded vice through every pore. It was Fontaine whom Nana seized by that mad infatuation of women for the hideous grimaces of ugly comic actors, had been fetching nightly for a week past from the variety theatre. There, said she, pointing to him with a tragic gesture. Mufa, who was prepared for almost anything, indignantly resented the affront. Strumpet, he stammered. But Nana, already in the bedroom, returned to have the last word. Strumpet, indeed. Then what about your wife? And turning on her heel, she loudly banged the door after her and bolted it. The two men left alone looked at each other in silence. Zoe then entered the room. She did not hurry them off, but talked very sensibly to them. Like a reasonable being, she thought Madame had behaved very foolishly. However, she took her part. Her mania for that wretched stroller wouldn't last long. All they had to do was to wait till she had got over it. They then withdrew. They had not uttered a word. Outside on the pavement, moved by a sort of fraternal feeling, they silently shook hands. And, turning their backs on each other and dragging their legs along, they went off in opposite directions. When Mufa at length returned to his house in the Rue Miromenil, his wife had just arrived there. They both met on the broad staircase, the somber walls of which diffused an icy chill around. Raising their eyes, they beheld each other. The Count was still in his muddy clothes, and his face had the frightful pallor of a man returning from a surfeit of vice. The Countess, blear-eyed with her hair all disheveled, and looking thoroughly exhausted by a night passed in the train, seemed scarcely able to keep awake. End of chapter 7